Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 55. Today in the show, we're diving into the sticky topic of deer hunting politics, policies, and problems. So buckle up, because this one gets a little feisty. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by our friends at Sitka Gear. Now today, as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to be talking about deer hunting politics, policies, and problems. And we're doing this because the 2015 North American Deer Summit was held last week, and all three of those things were in focus at that event. So that said, I wanted to spend today recapping the North American Deer Summit and diving into the many different issues that were up for discussion and debate over the past few days. But before we get to all that, we've got something pretty important to discuss. My co-host and new dad of a little boy, Mr. Dan Johnson, is back on the podcast. Welcome back, bud. I'm back. You are. How's it feel? I'm tired. I'm (laughs) tired. I, you know, like, remember how we used to always be like, hey, what kind of beer are you drinking while we record the podcast? You know, that, uh, I'm drinking black coffee right now, if that tells you anything. Okay? It does. Second kid, don't do it. If if your wife try, or, you know, anybody says, hey, man, let's do the world a favor. Let's do our part and have a second kid. They're trying to trick you. Okay. <laughs> and that might just be the stress talking, but uh, it's a it's a change. The pace, I love him to death, and uh, it's 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 something. It's it's an awesome experience. But uh, I, you know, I, I got to tell you a quick little story. So I, my first child was a girl, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, changing her diapers was easy. You have all systems go when you change a boy because if you're not ready and prepared, <laughs> you're getting a facial. You're getting you're getting rocket peas that are going like four or five foot. I mean, it's not just little dribbles. You think little baby had little peas? No, they have grown man peas. <laughs> and we've changed our bed sheets like seven, eight times. So now, is that because of you or the baby? No, no, not me. I still got it together. But this little guy, 
His name is Mac. And uh, it, he is just all he does, I, and literally eat, sleep, defecate, and pee. I mean, that's all he does. <laughs> so he's living the dream. Oh yeah, yeah. If you if you could add deer hunting into that list of things to do, I would find that a great life. Yeah, that, that's really all. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well that's that's awesome. But I don't uh, I don't envy the whole pee getting the pee in the face. But yeah, uh, you're you're gonna get it someday. You're going to get, I know you're going to, your first kid's going to be a boy and his nickname is going to be the sprinkler. (laughs) If that's the case, I, uh, I don't even know to say that. (laughs) Yeah. How's this, uh, how's the little guy sleep? Right now he's sleeping all the time, which is good. He'll wake up like at at night, he'll wake up every three to four hours and he'll cry and we got to change his diaper and pee. And because my wife's off work, she's handling most of that. I sleep in the same room, so I'm up anyway. But I'm like, ever since, before I had kids, I could sleep through a tornado siren. But since I've had kids, I'm like on high alert all the time. So any squeak in the house, any little noise that the kids make, I'm up and like ready to attack. I don't know what it is. It's just like some kind of instinct has taken over me. So That's like the biggest thing that worries me is like, I just, i I don't function when I don't have like relatively consistent sleep and I just I'm panicking already about waking up every two hours and getting like four hours of sleep every night. Let and... me let me tell you what I, I compare it to. OK, you know, you got your two week rut vacation uh-huh. and you're about seven days into your hunt. You're hunting every morning. You're hunting every night. There's days you're sitting in stand all day long, got that fresh air and you're just like almost a zombie. Yeah but you still keep going. That is what it's like right now for me. Ugh. Man, <laughs> that's, <laughs> I know that feeling and it's brutal. Yeah. Yep. So that's, that's the best way I can put it to people who don't have kids is that specific, that kind of tired. You're worn out. I mean, you're not, you know, when you think of deer hunting, what are you really doing physically? If you're a tree stand hunter, you're setting up, you're tearing down, but then you just sit in one spot for, hours at a time you know here you're just sitting you're not doing too much physical activity you know but you're drained and i just want it to be over (laughs) yeah long time man (laughs) yeah no doubt right so is what's the best thing about this like is there any good thing i'm assuming there is oh yeah man just like my daughter is a character and watching her grow up and and get a personality is is an amazing thing like i love her so much and just she's she's going to be a firecracker just like her mom but she sings all the time and watching her develop um physically and mentally and she's going to be smart too and then my son just like i don't if you've ever watched a birth like I was there I was holding the legs I was watching the head come out of the vagina and all that stuff that goes along with hey this is this is real talk man you're right this is real talk (laughs) and and watching your your child actually be born is a life-changing event and it's just like you don't get grossed out you don't get nauseous you just sit there and you you look at it and you're like I'm a man I made that and the cool thing about a boy is like, it's almost like historical. It's because that son will someday carry on your legacy. 
right? It, he carries, yeah. he's going to carry your name for the rest of his life. And hopefully he can be better than I was just like I can try to be better than my dad. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a pride. It's, it's, it's pride. You know, it's like, that is my son. You know, I hope he turns out to be a great man. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. That's yeah. as much as kids scare the crap out of me, given everything you've told me over the last, <laughs> you know, year. Yeah. I, uh, I am really looking forward to, to that. And I bitch a lot. I mean, I bitch and complain a lot about, about not my kids, but having kids, if that makes sense. And, but there's nothing I would rather do, you know, than spend time with them and hang out with them. And, and it's cool because my daughter, she wants to be outside all the time. And I absolutely love that she's interested in the outdoors already. So I'm pumped to this summer, get her out fishing for the very first time and, you know, get her dirty and get her used to it. So I can, you know, basically have a hunter in training in my under my belt you know it's pretty cool well i uh i'm sure you're gonna do a great job raising uh your new son and and you're soon to be a fishing hunting daughter so yep, yep. pretty pumped for you buddy well thank you thank you yeah let's get let's get talking about this though yeah uh, i i'm i'm really excited to hear what you have to say about this yeah i um there was so much that happened last week um, and so this, I haven't really been able to like, um, I don't know what the right word is, not decompress, but, uh, uh, gosh, it's like when you come back from like a battle and you come back to the main base and you have to sit back and have a meeting about what happened. Yeah. What's that word? It's like you, you're, you're not yet absorbed everything that actually happened. Yeah. I, I'm still haven't figured out my word, but, but yes, to what you said, yeah. I, I still haven't, um, just processed it all. And yeah. I think if we can talk about it today, I think that's going to help me process it. And hopefully it's going to be something that's helpful to everyone listening too, because, you know, there's a lot of things happening in the deer hunting world. Um, we've talked about this a little bit, you know, in some of our past episodes. I think it was, uh, I guess I don't remember what number, but earlier this year we had Kip Adams talk about the state of whitetails. And he talked about a lot of the different challenges in the deer hunting world right now. And then a couple of weeks later, we had Dr. Grant Woods on the show, and he talked about some of the ways that we can, you know, deal with some of these challenges. Um, but, you know, last week at the 2015 North American Deer Summit, we were taking a look at these challenges from a really big picture view. So not just, you know, how do I deal with too many coyotes on my property, but this is how do we deal with the things that are affecting all deer hunters mm-hmm. and deer hunting agencies or you know wildlife agencies and the hunting industry and, and everything at the very, very highest level. What are these big problems or policies or political issues that are that are going to impact you and me and everyone listening? And that's kind of a big deal. Yep. And I think for the first time, well, I don't think this really is the first time, you know, in the past year where the the larger deer hunting community has come together to discuss these issues and talk about, you know, what can we do as a community to address them? So it's really kind of historical and it's kind of neat to be a part of that. Um, And so what I want to do today, Dan, was really quickly, I'll just recap, you know, how we got to this point. We've talked about it a little bit. Um, but just for anyone who, who hasn't followed along with this the past year, I want to talk a little bit about what happened last year with the very first deer summit that ever happened and then how that led to this event last week. Um, and then we can, you know, what I thought I'd do is I could walk us through all the main things that happened at the summit 
talk about you know what the different speakers had to say or what the different debates were debates were um and then you know i think we can just kind of explore each of those different issues i you know i'm interested in sharing some of my opinions on it and would of course love to hear what you think about some of these things and uh you know my end goal is to to make sure everyone out there understands what happened make sure everyone you know feels educated on what these different issues are and then hopefully can maybe give us all a little bit of uh encouragement to, to take action on some of these things. And we can talk about how we can, how we can make sure our voice is heard and make sure that, you know, what, what our hopes and thoughts are for where we see the deer hunting community, um, going, hopefully we can, you know, make change and make sure that happens. So that's kind of my high level ambitious goals for the next hour, but, uh, I think we can do it. What do you think? Let's get the party started, Mark. Yeah, I think we should. So a real quick history recap. Dan, and you tell me, I think you know most of this, but if not, feel free to, you know, ask me any more questions. But as we've talked about before, lots of different challenges that have been impacting the deer hunting world. Um, you know, in 2007 and in 2012, we had the largest EHD, that's a very common deer disease, outbreaks, um, and that caused a whole massive, uh, really, die-off of deer across many parts of the country. So that happened recently. We've had, you know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Kip Adams, declining deer harvests across many parts of the country, especially the Midwest. Um, we've had some historically difficult winters uh, that cause a lot of winter kill. We've had increased levels of predators in many parts of the country, which is causing you know much lower fawn recruitment rates. We've had all these things going on, plus we've had a number of controversies around you know captive deer we've had controversies around you know how many doe permits should be allowed all sorts of different things like that have just caused kind of a climax of concern around deer hunting and so coming out of that which really started reaching a peak in you know after the 2013 season the quality deer management association decided to put on an event that brought together really everyone involved in the deer world and bring them all to one place the, the key stakeholders bring them all in one place and talk about what's going on. So that was the 2014 North American deer summit. And that was an invite only event, which brought together some of the, the, you know, all the different, a number of the different wildlife agencies. So state fish and game agencies, it brought together representatives of different conservation and advocacy organizations in the hunting world. It brought together the hunting media. It brought together a bunch of people that represent companies in the hunting industry. Um, it brought just regular hunters and, um, I think I'm missing one other category, uh, academia. So different people within the deer research community brought all these different people together to talk about, okay, what's going on here. And so the big takeaways coming out of that event were identifying, okay, what are the issues that we're concerned about right now? What are the things impacting deer? And then, you know, what's our next step? And one of the, the biggest thing that came out of that was that there needed to be a national organization to represent deer hunters and deer at a large national level and one that could advocate on behalf of all of us. And something that that's something that currently isn't there. You know, Dan, there's the Quality Deer Management Association, which is a great organization, but they represent a smaller sub-segment of the deer hunting population, the people that are involved in a certain type of management. Uh, there's Whitetails Unlimited, and they represent you know, deer hunters and some advocacy on a grassroots level. Um, but there, there really isn't just an overarching group that, that kind of fits all deer hunters. And yeah. so, as you know, and as we've talked about before on the podcast, the National Deer Alliance was created this past summer. I won't you know, go into more details about what that is because we've talked about it before. But coming out of that, the National Deer Alliance has now partnered with the Quality Deer Management Association, Whitetails Unlimited, and the Mule Deer 
Federation or Foundation. I can't remember which. <laughs> That's bad. Um, so the, the three major deer groups are now working in partnership with the National Deer Alliance to, to tackle these larger deer issues. And so... That's what the 2015 North American Deer Summit um, was to be, was to bring all of those stakeholders back together. Now the National Deer Alliance has been created. That's step number one. Now this event this past week was talking about, okay, let's, talk, let's identify what the absolute most important issues are for the NDA, the National Deer Alliance. What are those most important issues for the NDA to start actually making immediate impacts on? And then number two, let's talk about actual action items. So what are the specific things that we need to do to address those issues? So at a high level, that was the goal of this event. It was a three-day event. It was like an all-day thing. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a lot of stuff going on. So I think that puts us in a position where we can kind of, I think, have a good, hopefully some good context of what this is all about. Right. So I got a real, a real quick question for you. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's actually pertains to this. It's, it's two questions, actually. Well, one's a comment, uh, and it, this this one that you were at this past week was open to the public, correct? That is correct. Huge gripe for me is that it was a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday event, correct? That is correct. And it so right there, you're kind of you're kind of isolating people who have to work away from this job, away from that, you know? Because I would have loved to be at that event, but I would have had to take in vacation days to do it. If I was, you know, obviously if there's people out there who are really serious about doing it, just like certain trade shows, I know it's more of a, you know, a, a business type thing to have it during the week, but I felt that something like this should have been held on a weekend. So a majority of people like the more public, I have a feeling would have attended. Uh, and then you get a larger sample size of, of what individuals issues are. Yeah. I agree with you. I um, I definitely think that was something that impacted the amount of participation. Um, and then another thing, um, and geez, I lost my train of thought. What was your second question? My second question was turnout. Mm. I I want to know was there a large was were the people that were there was it public or what did they all have were they all a part of you know, that the Mule Deer uh, Federation or the um, Whitetails Unlimited or Quality Deer Management or some state and game agency, or was there, was there a mixture of, of people there? I mean, I have, I have some notes here. Like, I, I remember texting you this weekend and saying, um, are there this, you know, are there certain, who's, who's there? And you said, the majority of the people are, are the behind the scenes people. So, so like, I think I asked you hunting industry people, like were any celebrities there Were any um, like business people there? Like, let's say, for example, the owner of Realtree, like was Bill Jordan there or any anybody similar to him that that has more of a financial uh, reason to be there as opposed to, you know, because in, in one of the articles I read, forty five billion dollars a year is created by whitetail hunting alone in that industry. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. Um, so yeah, to your question, a lot of good stuff there. Um, turnout was uh, several hundred, I think between two and 300, somewhere on there. And the survey, the, we did a survey at the very beginning. Um, this is really interactive. So it was voting done throughout the, throughout the event. And we had these little clickers where we had to 
punch in our answers to these different questions. Um, it was about evenly split, um, almost perfectly evenly split, if I believe, or if I remember correctly, between industry representatives, which would be like owners of companies or representatives of a company. So between industry, between media, between um, like uh, conservation organization people, which would be like a QDMA person or uh, whatever, um, and regular hunters, just a person who has no other affiliation except for being a hunter. Um, and whatever the other couple are, the only one that had a much smaller portion was the academics. So like the people just from a university that are researchers or something. Um, so I don't know if there were, if there was something like if it was 300, you know, whatever that 300 divided by six groups or five groups of different type of people was, that's about what the split was now. I think two things. I think to your point, if it was a different part of the week, if it was like Friday, Saturday, Sunday or something, I think there would have been a lot more of just your general public hunter, which mm-hmm. would have been great. Um, and then, but number two, just in general, I was disappointed with the turnout, especially from people who are, you know, particularly invested in this community. So like, like you said, hunting celebrities, there wasn't, and I'm going to kind of call out some, I'm not going to call out specific people, but I'm just going to call out the general hunting TV, hunting media group of people out there, right? These are our quote unquote celebrities who make a living from the hunting industry. They make a living from deer and they, you know, they're a big deal because of it. I didn't see a single person. Well, the only person from a TV show I saw there was Steven Ranella, who was there as a speaker and a leader, you know, in, in ways. Um, but other than him, there was not a single person that I saw from the TV world there to talk about, to, to be involved at all in this discussion. And I, you know, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you know, was he paid to be there? Was he paid to speak? Yeah. He, I mean, those, those okay. main, those main keynote speakers, I'm sure were paid. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know details about, it, but my assumption, that's my assumption. Right. Um, so that said, you know, where are these big famous TV guys that their whole world and living depends on this? Why aren't they here caring about these issues? Why aren't they standing up and offering opinions or offering support or talking about ways that they can help? Um, why is it only just the people that do research and the people that run the conservation organizations and, you know, a, a select group of people that manage these companies and, you know, a handful of hunters? Where, where were more people? I think this is, this is really some important shit that was being talked about. Yeah, and I don't think people were stepping up to be a part of it. No, um, that's huge. That's and I, huge. And I put the. Uh, I understand with the general hunting public, it's tough to get out of work. It's tough to you know pay the whatever that there was a you know some amount of money that cost to go to the summit, which was you know it wasn't like twenty bucks. It was like a hundred bucks or hundred fifty bucks or something like that. Um, so it's not like a, a cheap thing. So I understand that the average guy or girl might not be able to come. Although I I hope in the future there'll be more. There, sh- there has to be more. Um, but when it comes to these big name people who have some money and they have the time and their their whole livelihood and, and they claim their passion is around this animal, why aren't they a part of these discussions? Why aren't they sacrificing a little, a little bit of time and energy to be a part of the solution? I personally was very disappointed in that. And uh, it's unlikely that any of them are listening. But if any of them are listening, I hope that they would consider the importance of being involved in these things. Because if stuff hits the fan and deer hunting and or deer hunting populations or deer hunting regulations or whatever it might be if those things start going down the drain in some way that they don't see happy about i guarantee they're gonna be throwing a fit about it and complaining lots of people will be but are they actually taking an active step to be a part of the solution so far i haven't seen it not there are some people who are stepping up and agree i don't want to cast the blame on everyone but i just like to encourage 
everyone and anyone listening, whether you're in the industry or you're a celebrity or you're an average guy, you know, be involved, I think is, is my main message here. Let's all take a step up ourselves and not just expect someone else to deal with it. Right. And that's the thing, you know, I, I was at the booth at the ATA show and you have all these, the backdrop of the booth is all these celebrities or, or who's who in the hunting industry saying that they support the natural Nash, um, the NDA, but not actually there to support the NDA. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of so, people who will, who would, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be too quick to point fingers because everyone's got their reasons for whatever, but in general, I'm not, I'm not seeing a lot of active support from some of these people that say they support. Yeah. And I, I wish that wasn't the case and I hope that will change. Well, and that's not, it's not just celebrities either. Right. It's all people. All people. Yep. So that's that's my first rant of what might be a lot of rants today because this is one of those topics where where I am uh, I'm ready to rant. So yep. get ready for that, Dan. Hey, I'm ready to rant too. Because <laughs> we're talking politics, policies, and problems and that's stuff yep. that gets people fired up. So. Yep. So, all right, let's, I, I thought maybe I'll just start day one. I'll walk us through some of the different topics of each day that I remember, and then we can kind of dive into each one of those as, as you or I see fit. So the first part of day one, right, we got everyone together in this great big convention hall, and the first thing we talked about were the state of whitetails and the state of mule deer in, the North, in North America. So I don't think we need to dive, excuse me, too far into that because, you know, a few podcasts ago, Kip you know, shared with us essentially a, a synopsis of the current state of whitetails. And he was the speaker who, who gave this talk at the, uh, at the summit as well. So you and me, I think, you know, I think anyone listening, they know the bullet points. Um, I'll give a really quick overview. If you're looking at deer populations and harvest rates across the country, in some parts of the country, it's, it's normal. It's kind of fine and dandy. And then in other parts of the country, it's getting to like crisis mode. We're seeing some dramatic reductions, um, more dramatic than we've seen in, in recent history by far. So um, those areas of concern right now, the biggest is the Midwest. So in the Midwest, overall harvest, I believe, was is down 20% over the past decade. Um, in some states, like in Iowa, buck harvest, um, or maybe it's overall harvest, is down 40%. Um, I, Gosh, I wish I had these numbers in front of me. I should have grabbed the numbers. Um, but there's something, a dramatic number of states in the Midwest are down over 20% in harvest. Yeah, 23%. Um, yeah. yeah, there you go. Thank you. Um, so th there's a lot of situations like that that's causing concern. And as I mentioned at the front end, those different things, disease, predation, predators, um, winters, habitat loss, a whole bunch of different things are being discussed as what might be the issues related to that. But those are things that are all causing concern in the state of whitetails. Um, and then there's other things, you know, outside of just the general, you know, uh, well-being of whitetail populations. There's things that are affecting, you know, deer hunters. So, you know, hunting access, um, hunting, yeah, the perception of hunters and what that means for the non-hunting public's, uh, you know, voting habits regarding hunting there's some different things related like i mentioned habitat loss there's massive amounts of habitat being uh developed or put into production right now at a at a scale that hasn't been seen in a long time i think nine million acres in the midwest were were taken out of crp and so as you know dan crp is amazing deer habitat mm -hmm. and a ton of it over the last decade a dramatic amount um, has been taken out of that habitat and put into crops which you know do not provide quality habitat for deer most of the year. So 
that's been a huge thing that's affecting deer across states like Iowa and the Dakotas and places like that where there's tons of ground being put into corn or different things like that. So a whole bunch of things like that are, are causing some concerns within the whitetail world recently, past decade. Really the past handful of years is when you know you and me and most other people have been noticing these things. As far as mule deer, really quickly, they, they had a number of things occur in the mule deer world with like the late 90s that caused a lot of deer population crashes, and they really haven't recovered much since then. So they've been kind of deal, been dealing with an ongoing crisis of sorts within the mule deer world that is still an issue now. And so now that the National Deer Alliance has been created, we're, we're working on behalf of all deer. So we're, as a larger deer community, we'll be hopefully trying to help what the mule deer federation foundation has been battling for you know the past 20 30 years but that's a big thing we talked about day one i know that when i went to nebraska this past year to hunt mule deer and antelope and and whitetail that i i got to i did a little research and and they actually opened up more even though the numbers were not good enough to sustain you know they wanted to kill as many whitetails in specific areas as possible to allow the mule deer to come back into that area yeah. because some something about just the way they are whitetails tend to be more aggressive and can push mule deer out of specific areas so that's one that's one example yeah yeah that was one of the examples they talked about too in general it seems like you know mule deer are just much more susceptible to habitat loss and in you know increased competition from from other species whether that's whitetails or elk um, and a whole bunch of different things have, have made mule deer um, it's made the last you know 10 20 30 years a challenge for mule deer so that's a, a topic for another podcast or another episode yep. um, but the next topic of conversation is a big debate over the last few years and that's captive deer there was a panel discussion about what was called the captive servant industry, which I felt was just a PC way of talking about high fence deer farming and breeding. Yep. Um, and this panel involved uh, an evenly split group of people. Um, it represents, it was a handful of people from the deer breeding side of things. There was a biologist and then there was i I'm going to get this wrong. I should, I'm not prepared with my notes. Um, but the president of the North American Deer Farmers Association, I believe, uh, I think that was his title, uh, Sean Schaefer. Um, and then there was a uh, a representative from the Southeast uh, Deer Disease Group, something along those lines. There was a guy, there was a disease expert. There was a guy that was a member of the board or the member of association for the deer farming. There was another biologist that had sounded like he was from Texas and was involved in that industry. And then there was another um, person who was representing Texans for our hunting heritage or something along those lines. And she was speaking uh, on behalf of reform in the deer captive deer industry. So against high fence canned hunting for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was these four different people and, I was expecting, you know, for the most part, most of the people that I assume are part of the National Deer Alliance. And I think if you talk to most of the average deer hunters outside of the far south and like Texas, most of us, most people are, are not in favor of high fence hunting and a lot of these deer breeding facilities and things where there's, you know, this all this genetic mutation and these monster deer that are then shot in pens and stuff. Um, so I was expecting some pretty strong debates and um, I was expecting a little bit of some fireworks and it really kicked off. Um, the, there was a facilitator for the panel discussion. He kind of kicked it off um, by saying, you know, 
we're all going to be acting respectful here. We're all going to be, um, you know, we're going to act like adults. We're not, we're going to treat each other like ladies and gentlemen, and we expect everyone here to be treated that way. So it was kind of set up like, yikes, this could get feisty. Um, but it didn't really ever get there. And in general, I felt like we got sidetracked. So the, the leading speaker was this gentleman, Sean Schaefer from the, uh, like I said, I think it's the North American Deer Farmers Association. And he spoke about chronic wasting disease, which is a big concern for a lot of people in the deer hunting community. And he talked about uh, some of the different research and experiences that uh, that have been looked into from their side of the quote-unquote, or no pun intended, on their side of the fence. Um, and really, I felt like his he, he opened up the discussion. And by leading this whole discussion down the path of talking about CWD, it kind of tainted the whole discussion. The whole debate really ended up just being about CWD. And if CWD is being actively transmitted to wild populations by virtue of high fenced captive herds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really a big part of the conversation was just Sean Schaefer sharing, you know, their side's view. And then this other gentleman, um, John Fisher, I believe, sharing the view from a more scientific basis on the, the non-high fence side, talking about the, the real concerns that he has um, and that their you know, various experts have about you know, the risk that CWD poses to high fence or to, to native herds. And then it kind of went back and forth, back and forth on that, and just lots of like semantics. Um, I really thought there needed to be a greater conversation about the, the ethics of what's going on here mm-hmm. and how that's going to impact all deer hunters, regardless of if, you know, we participate in high fence facilities or hunting. Um, and the one representative Jenny, um, from the Texans for protecting our hunting heritage. Um, she, her, her main point was just that, that there are some very serious concerns from a public perception standpoint, because I think the most recent survey showed that 80% of Americans are in support in general of hunting. But when we're asked about specific reasons for hunting, so when we ask for something like trophy hunting, it plummets to less than 20% of people are in support of that. Yeah. And then if you ask for canned hunting, it's, I mean, it's minuscule. I mean, almost no one would be in support of that. But the issue, you know, that I've seen and heard is that when people see a canned hunt or it's talked about in the media or something, somebody talks about that, it's that, that just, is hunting that's in their eyes. That's all those, that's what all hunters do. That's, that's what these people are doing. No way can we support that. No way should Mark and Dan be able to go out there and shoot deer. They're, they're just raising these giant nasty bucks and fences and shooting them like, you know, ducks in a barrel or fish in a barrel. Um, and so, you know, my big concern here is that if we're not distancing ourselves and I have a very strong stance on this, I'm very much against, these captive deer breeding facilities where they're genetically and selectively breeding these deer for mega racks and raising them like livestock and then selling them off to the highest bidder to be shot in some small enclosure. That's not hunting. That's not representative of what I love and what you love and what 99% of deer hunters out there, you know, are passionate about. Um, and I have very strong concerns about what it means for the public perception and also there's very strong disease concerns that, you know, I mentioned earlier. So my super high level opinion on the whole debate was that I wish we talked more about that. I wish we hadn't talked so much just about, you know, does this disease do this or not? Because it got bogged down in that. And I thought there were bigger issues. Um, right. And I, I bet you 
no one from the uh, from the captive deer industry, you know, stepped up and said, "Hey, let's let me talk," because they were there. I had a feeling to just be there, so there was some kind of representation. They were prepared if the if the uh, you know the ball was put in their court, so to speak. But why would they bring it up if it wasn't brought up? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and I, I I know you know there's going to be people listening you know, that, that have hunted high fence enclosures and, and maybe it's, you know, it's a 20,000 acre enclosure and it's very much like free range and they're not, I'm not going to sit here and say that I understand everyone's situation and I've never been a part of that. So I'm not going to try to judge everyone, but I will very strongly and confidently say that, you know, the freak mutation selective breeding, I'm against that. And I'm very much against the very small enclosures or where they have a deer in a pen raised to be a giant and then they release him and then within an hour or 15 minutes or a day or two, then they send a hunter out into the hundred acre pen and then shoot him. That's just, in my personal opinion, that's, that's not hunting. And right. I am personally not in support of that. Um, so, you know, I think the representative from the deer farmers world, I think he, I think they were smart in steering the conversation just towards like a tit for tat semantics discussion about CWD and they kind of kept it away from getting to those other those other parts of the conversation, which I think are harder for them to depend or to defend. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit. All right. It comes with doctor prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. 
That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. What what specifically, and I'm gonna play devil's advocate here for a second. Because let's say a giant pen down in Texas or in, in any other state, hell, it could be next to your next to your hunting property. And let's take disease out of the out of the equation for a second. How does that affect you as a hunter? So if disease is out of the equation. Yeah. And if this is just a are we talking like a big it is let's say what who, who cares what the size is let's say it is you know we got one to your left and it's three thousand acres and one to your right and it's a hundred acres where they have a, a stable they raise the buck and they let it into a hundred acres and the guy shoots it with a rifle okay so here's my other than the risk of disease here's my two major qualms of that um number one the North American model of wildlife conservation. This is like the, the bedrock philosophy that all of hunting and conservation in America is based on. This was developed back in the early 20th century by like the likes of Theodore Roosevelt and these guys that were the forefathers of what we're doing here. And they talked about the fact that there's a few basic principles that should guide game management and hunting and conservation in this country. And one of those big, important, unique principles, which makes the United States and Canada, for to, to a degree, completely different than anywhere else in the world, like Europe. You know, in Europe, the everyman, regular people, they don't get to hunt very much because deer is considered, or wildlife is considered private property. So it used to be a thing of just the rich, the elite, um, the big elites, the, the people who had a lot of money and land, they got to hunt their deer that they owned on their private land. And then everyone else that didn't own that land had no wildlife to hunt. They couldn't go on these other places to, to harvest a deer because that'd be taking private property. So what was very different about here in America is that wildlife was deemed to be in the public trust. So wildlife can never be private property. A deer on property that you might own a piece of land, Dan, but that wildlife, that deer is public. No one can own that deer. And that's been, you know, one of the absolute bedrock, most important, parts of what it means to be an American and a hunter and to be part of this way of life. Now, when you take, you take a fence and you put a fence around your hundred acres or even your 20,000 acres, and now you take that deer herd and now you start selling that deer herd, you are essentially taking that deer out of the public trust. That deer is no longer available to me or available to be viewed by me or, or whatever it might be. And now you're putting a price tag on it and then you're using it as private property for yourself. Um, whether that happened, you know, 50 years ago or yesterday, um, there are significant issues there from a basic principles of the North American model. What's the difference between that and uh, an outfitter who owns 2,000 some acres, low fence, and is is highly highly managed? So, I mean, the, the biggest thing is that those deer aren't private. They they don't have the only access to it. They, they are not confined to a place. Now, yes, they make people make money off of those deer to a degree, but it is not a private locked-in set. These deer are in this one place. They can't move. They can't cross the boundaries. Um, it's blurry, right? There's some, gray, there's yeah. some, some shades of gray there, um, and that's something that raises questions. But I think when you have a high fence, when you take these deer completely within your possession and then you start selling them off like livestock, managing and selling them off like livestock – 
that raises significant, you know, just basic principle issues. Right. The, the, the second issue then goes back to what I said earlier, which is the fact that high fence breeding facilities and canned hunting is going to be a significant problem for fair chase regular hunters like me because of what outsiders will think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get to this in a second, but the two of the top five issues that were, that were identified at the summit, one was hunter recruitment and one was the public perception of hunting and what that will mean for, you know, how people will vote and how people will treat hunters and how, what that will mean for the future of hunting. So those are two of the top five issues. If canned hunting, you know, where we have these 350 inch bucks that live in a pen and then are shot the next day, if that's something that non-hunters see, that number one significantly negatively impacts their perception of hunting. And number two, that turns away potential new hunters. That's not something that uh, that a guy living in New York City that wants to start killing his own food is going to see and be like, oh yeah, I want to try that. Hell no. That's going to turn off a lot of people. So right off the bat, if those are two important issues that that the the Deer Alliance and the Summit has agreed upon, I don't see how that they can be in support of something like canned hunting um, or some of these you know freak breeding practices. Do you think that? And I, I'm I'm spitballing here. Do you think that that a high fence company should you know? You know, if we're if we're so concerned with what the public thinks, non-hunters think of high fence, quote unquote, hunting. Do you think that there could potentially be in the future rules uh, put in place to where a high fence facility could not say could say we are we are not a hunting facility, and you know have you know put in uh, rules and regulations to tell, you know, everybody, we are not an official hunting. We don't do that. You know, we are, you know, basically call them, call them out and tell them what they really are. Right. This is a shooting facility. This is a shoot or something along those lines to let them continue to make their money, which is what they want to do. Right. That the high fence industry, in my opinion, is all about making money. And that's when, when you take that out of the equation, then it's really it's not a, I mean it it's a huge deal that's all they're concerned about it's a business to them as opposed to a resource like what me and you are used to so you know getting getting it to where you know we do not represent those kind of companies we like uh, the NDA does not represent those kind of companies we don't do this we don't do this they're on their own you know if you're going to think about hunting don't think about them think about us have a mission statement and, and all, you know, and all those things to where we're not, we're not trying to cut somebody out of the equation, but yet say we are in no way associated with you. And we feel that you do not represent hunters in the United States. Yeah. I think, um, I think one, one thing I'll say before I dive into that, just to clarify here is everything that I'm saying here is my own personal Mark Kenyon right. opinion. It's right. not. It's not representative of the National Deer Alliance. Uh, it's not representative of any companies uh, that I know or that we work with or anything. This is just me, me spitballing my own personal opinion. And we're all, you know, we all have our own opinion. So that said, to your question, Dan, um, I think that's something that was definitely talked about, and that was those were some of the th- major concerns that came out of this discussion. Because after this whole panel discussion, um, the next day was when 
everyone at the summit voted on their top issues. And another of the top five issues, um, I mentioned already that hunter recruitment and public perception were two of those five. Another of those top five was just this, the captive deer industry. So mm-hmm. um, we had conversations then on day three about what potential action items there could be um, to, to you know, address this issue of the captive deer industry and what its implications are on deer and deer hunters across the country. And some of the things that were talked about were just what you said, like trying to institute some kind of common terminology. You know, what do we call, do we reference these canned hunts as hunts or can we, you know, qualify them as something different, shoots or whatever. There's a whole bunch of conversations about different semantics in that regards. You know, can we put different regulations on them? Can we make sure that it's spoken about in different ways so that it doesn't appear to be as associated with hunting or with real hunting? Um, there was a lot of things like that, but I unfortunately wasn't able to be a part of that part of the discussion I was doing. I was interviewing someone outside of the, um, outside of the main convention hall for that when they talked about that one issue. Um, but what I, what I would have loved to see someone say, which nobody did say was what you just, what you just brought up being us distancing ourselves from that part of the quote unquote industry and saying, Mm -hmm. Hey, that's not hunting. That's not representative of deer and deer hunters across the country. And we want to make sure that's something that is clearly understood by everyone. Um, In my personal opinion, that would be the right choice. Exactly. And and that's what I, although, you know, although we do not, from an ethics standpoint, we do not consider that hunting. We consider that considering that basically livestock harvesting, right? you know, taking a cow and shooting it in the head and then cutting it up and eating it. Right. You know, cause it, that's my opinion of what it is. But I also, from a, from an economic standpoint, I feel that, and I know this is where the line gets kind of gray, but everybody has the right to start a business and make money and make them happy. You know, that, that pursuit of happiness, so to speak. And if you're, if, if you're not hurting anybody, then I feel that you should be able to continue to do what you want to do. But asterisks here, if you're, what you're doing plays a direct threat through disease to our natural resource, shut them down, get them out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point, there's a, there's a lot of gray areas and I don't, you know, neither of us can claim that we understand it from all sides of the view, um, you know, from all points of view. So I'm, I'm, you know, we're offering our perspective on this, but Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, you know, when the implications of what's happening there starts impacting the greater public resource or by virtue of, you know, perception and impacting other people's opinions and causes, you know, greater harm to everyone, that's when I start getting concerned about it. Um, And that's why I have these concerns. So they're concerns. That's my opinion. That's where I wish things had gone. At least I wish that discussion was had. I didn't think that we, that it went quite into that as much as I maybe would have liked to seen, Mm -hmm. but you know, we'll see. There's, um, you know, if I'm looking right here at uh, the action items. So what, what happens was we talked about each one of the major five issues, which I'll, I'll get to the rest of them in a second. Um, but then on that final day of the summit, then the larger group, you know, brought up different potential action items that we could take to address that issue. 
So um, I'll just read off the ones that were suggested when it comes to the captive deer industry. Um, one was to advocate to ensure that deer are classified as wildlife and not livestock. That's been a debate that's been happening in a bunch of states over the last year, Dan. I don't know if you've seen um, any of the news posts on the National Deer Alliance Facebook page or emails or anything like that, but a number of states, like in Indiana, I think, uh, Missouri, North Carolina, Missouri, West yeah. Virginia, yeah, they've been debating should deer be classified as wildlife or as livestock? And then by virtue of that, should they be managed by the fish and game agencies or should they be managed by the Department of Agriculture? Right. Um, and that's has- crazy. And, and, and specifically for Missouri, I think that captive elk are under the agriculture and deer are under the um, DNR, Department of Natural Resources. So it just doesn't make sense why one animal is under one agency and the other animal is under the other agency when the goal is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of debates going on about that. So one of the major things talked about was like most everyone who talked at the event said that they believe that they should be classified and managed as wildlife. Um, we talked more, uh, there's more discussion about, you know, partnering with trying to get more disease research, trying to better understand what the disease, disease implications are. Um, there was a lot of talk about you know developing standard list of terminology to be used regarding the captive deer industry, um, development of best management practices regarding you know trying to set some like you said some kind of regulations for these um, facilities you know when it comes to how long these animals need to be released before they can be hunted how what kind of chemicals can be used on them all sorts of different things like that which in general is just a, a messy thing but they're talking about trying to regulate regulate that more um, partnering with more NGOs non uh, NGOs that foster fair chase and animal welfare, um, talking about the fact that you know wildlife agencies should be managing the animals and not state departments of ag, conducting surveys regarding the opinions on the captive servant industry to better understand what the wider population thinks and believes, um, advocating to make sure that hunters um, better understand what's going on in these facilities, uh, a whole bunch of different things like that. So there's a bunch of little ideas and stuff like that, but it wasn't like major, major... Um, action was discussed. So I don't know. I don't know where it's all going. It's a sticky subject, lots of opinions. Everyone usually has a very strong opinion on it. Um, but it was, it was one of those big things that we talked about. Right. But I worry we were talking a lot about this. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so real quick, the other major issues, which was what day two was really focused on was talking about the other top issues and then voting on what were the most important ones and then brainstorming action items. So, um, a couple of quick things about those other top issues that were discussed um, on the front end. There were some speakers. So there's, there was a speaker that discussed disease, so some of the different um, uh, things happening when it comes to disease in deer. There was a speaker that discussed the impact of predators on deer. There was someone who spoke about hunter and wildlife agency relations, which is definitely a challenge at times. You know, how regular average Joe hunters and the DNR or Department of Fish and Game, you know, interface and get along. Um and then there was a talk about hunter recruitment and, and how can we get more people into the hunting ranks and, um, you know, enjoy what we do. So there was a whole bunch of speakers discussing all those things. Um, the, the Cliff Notes version of each of those talks, when it comes to disease, chronic wasting disease is a scary one with lots of unknowns. It's popping up more and more places. There's strong beliefs that the transportation of captive deer across states and all over the place is you know, causing a lot of this spread because what happens is when one of these animals gets infected, CWD is transferred 
by virtue of contact with some kind of fluid. Um, so it's it's a prion. It's a mel. It's a messed up prion, which is like I think a, some portion of a protein that you know if it's on the ground, if deer feeding on the ground, and their saliva is eating like a pile of corn. And if there's one deer eating that pile of corn, any other deer that comes and eats near that one spot could pick up that prion and then become infected themselves. So then when you have these deer moving all over the place and then being put in these captive facilities where they're all eating out of the same little bucket or whatever, there's a high rate of transfer, which is why one of the big reasons and the concerns that people are worried about what might happen with that industry. So those are the big things with CWD. Lots of questions around that. Um, Dr. Grant Woods actually... Um, had a bunch of questions about that. He wasn't speaking, but he stood up and asked some questions to the people on that the earlier panel I talked about, talking about the fact that there is a way to test for CWD on a deer, and you can see if it's positive. You can get a positive, but there's no negative result. So it's either positive or undetermined. Like you can't 100% verify if a deer does not have it. Um, so it's, it, they don't, they aren't even able to properly test these animals yet. So there's just lots of unknowns. So that's the big thing with CWD. Um, the other major disease is hemorrhagic disease, which is an umbrella name for EHD, which is epizootic hemorrhagic disease and the blue tongue virus. They essentially have the same symptoms. So when you say EHD, usually people are thinking of the same thing as you know, Dan, and most everyone listening, um, you know, Within the last five years, 2007, 2012, we had those huge outbreaks across a lot of different states, uh, particularly states like Michigan, Iowa, Illinois, um, and that's where these deer, you know, end up finding lots of dead deer near water sources because they get a fever and they go there, and, and then that's where they end up dying. So, the big takeaway with EHD or HD is that it's it's moving north, um, and the belief is that it, it can't be proven yet, but it just seems like it is moving north due to changes in climate because the big agent of transfer for HD is a midge, a little tiny bug that carries the disease. And typically, um, those, when there's droughts, more deer are going to go to water, the, the smaller limited sources of water when there's a drought. And that's where the midges are. And so transfer becomes much more rapid. So you get much more uh, intense outbreaks of the disease, which is like what we had in Michigan in 2012, where we had the worst drought we've had in a long time, and then that coincided with this massive outbreak of HD. So that was another big discussion item. That uh, That's the headline for disease. Now, before we get into the next topic, though, we first need to pause briefly to thank our friends at Sick Gear for their support of the Wired to Hunt podcast. Now, last week, I shared with you guys the story of how I discovered Sika. And since that point, I've been able to use a lot of different pieces of Sika gear as I've chased whitetails, turkeys, and elk across the country. And over these past five years or so, one of my favorite things about their gear is just the attention to detail. You know, just like I'm obsessed with the details when it comes to hunting whitetails, Sika is obsessed about the details when designing the clothes we hunt in. You know, take for example their Fanatic jacket and the little added detail of placing specific pockets for a rangefinder and grunt tube on your chest. And that grunt tube even has a little, you know, mesh bottom so that if you don't even take it out of the pocket and just bend your head down to blow on that grunt, that sound can get out. Or in their new Fanatic hoodie, it's got a built-in face mask that pulls out from inside the hood and actually flip over hand mitts. It's kind of hard to describe, but they're they're awesome. You know, over and over, I see examples of this. Just these little things they add to a product that make a big difference. And every thing you know every tiny aspect of a piece of gear that they put out there it's thought through all the way and it just shows and when it comes to chasing big mature whitetails 
I'm looking for every advantage I can get, even when it comes to the little details in my clothing. And that is exactly why I use Sika gear. But now, back to the show and the next topic. Um, Any questions on the disease stuff, Dan? You know, I just want to make one quick point about, and this this part portion of the disease transferred by, you know, taking deer across state lines and high fence should just further the fact that these high fence operations need way more regulations and and control of their practice because it is a fa- it's a fact that you know that there I shouldn't say fact but high statistics that that what they're doing is affecting our natural resource the only difference between raising a cow and raising a deer to be quote unquote hunted in a high fence is the way it's killed one by a guy in a tree stand with a rifle the other one in a shoot with a you know a, a hammer over their head it's the only difference they're yeah. they're selective bred and they're they're put into into a cage to shoot yeah so and, and the the USDA has so many guidelines and, and regulations for hogs, chickens, and all these things that when an outbreak, for example, in Iowa uh, this year, there was like, I want to say over 10,000 turkeys that were killed because one bird tested positive for the bird, fl- the bird virus. Yeah. So all these, all these birds were wiped out to kind of control that. I feel that that's the same stance that needs to happen in these, in these, uh, these high fence operations. Yeah. And I I don't understand. I know there is regulation of them to some degree. I just don't, I don't know all the details of that. Um, so what I do know is that one of the points that was brought up in this conversation was that, you know, when it comes to the debate of who should manage these, should it be the department of ag or should it be the wildlife agencies? Um, one person's point, I think it was someone who represented a wildlife agency, I believe he said that, well, the wildlife agency, they can focus on deer. Deer is the most important resource for a wildlife agency, whether it's captive or not, it's, it's impacts the overall resource, which is the biggest driver for the department of ag. If the department of ag starts regulating deer, it becomes like the tiniest little fish in a huge, huge pond. Um, because you've got cattle, pork, chickens, turkeys, all these massive, massive industries. And the, the deer aspect of that would be a very minor portion of that. And the concern is that if the department of ag starts managing it, that they wouldn't pay it as much attention. And then that's why a lot of the captive deer advocates want the department of ag ag to to manage it. So I don't know. I don't know the details. I don't have that um, perspective. I don't know, but that's one thing to think about. And that's one of the concerns people have. So that's disease. Um, Predators were another big topic. Um, the headline for the predator discussion was just that predator and deer relationship. So the predator prey relationship is complex. It's different everywhere. It's different based on habitat. It's different based on population size, different based on, um, a whole slew of different things. Um, so it's, there's no like one size fits all solution. There's no one size fits all like diagnosis. Like in some places, coyote populations aren't really damaging deer herds. In some places they are in some places, black bears make a huge impact in some places they don't. Um, so it was, it's a complex web of cause and effect relationships that, um, it's, it's, there's no one size fits all. It's something that needs to be managed. Yes. 
Um, but at the same time, it's not something like you have to wipe out every single predator in the world um, because that then knocks out the integrity of an ecosystem too. So it's yeah, the, something... the ecosystem is so delicate yes. and it can be influenced by the smallest thing. There's a, there's a great uh, thing, um, YouTube video called how wolves changed rivers. Yeah. You, have you seen that? I haven't seen the video, but I've read some articles and some stuff about that. It, it, basically what it is, is they introduce wolves into this uh, area where there was a really big elk population and the, the elk were eating so much of the natural grasses and, and flora and fauna and all that stuff to where they were getting sick and they had disease because there's so many of them. They introduced wolves and the wolves started killing all these elk and moving them back up into the mountains. This, this change happened where grass started growing, trees started growing, rabbits started coming back, birds started nesting in these trees that now started growing. And this whole different ecosystem came, which in turn, like the river, instead of going straight, started meandering and slowing down again back to what they say was a natural type of uh, flow for the river. And, you know, obviously the elk hunters were mad that they introduced the wolves and the lovers of the wolves were mad that they, there was legislation to try to kill more of these wolves. And, and basically what happened is nature fixed itself. Yeah, that's, um, it's, uh, I think the technical term is called a a tropic cascade. Yes. Where where the impact of an apex predator, so a top predator, and how it impacts all the other species within an ecosystem, and, and it, what you know what you said is it will hopefully achieve the natural balance, like how things were before humans start interfering. Yep. Um, and so that seems like a ideal place to be. Unfortunately, you know, if you talk to any different person. <laughs> They all have disagreements on what they think that's supposed to be because how it's how it affects them. So, like you just said, exactly. people that you know love wolves or basic wildlife and stuff like that, they want to see the wolves brought back and not you know back from extermination where they almost were. And then you've got a lot of hunters who are upset because they're killing a lot of elk. Or in you know northern Wisconsin or northern Minnesota, Minnesota people hate the wolves because they feel like they're killing all the deer. Um, and this is a topic that I've got a lot of opinions on. And again, it's one that's probably gonna piss a lot of people off. Um, but I am a strong believer in management, right? Because when hunters, when, when people came into North America, or at least Europeans came in North America, we just, in general, you know, knocked the whole thing out of, out of skew, right? We changed everything. Yep. Um, and so it's never going to be able to go back to the way it was. That's just, it's, it's a, maybe it's a nice idea, but it's never going to go back because we just make an impact, no matter what humans have impacted it. Um, so there is a, there is a res- my belief is that there is a responsibility to manage it in some way. Um, but at the same time, I, I personally would like to see it managed to, to try to someday get back to a relatively natural, relatively balanced to some degree state. Um, so for me, I'm not in favor of exterminating predator populations. Right. I believe they do need to be, be managed though. There has to be some kind of balance, um, that is, that is created. Uh, because you're going to have deer hunters who are pissed because all the they think all the deer are gone because of wolves. Um, and I understand that, and I wouldn't want to be in that situation either. Um, but I also think that there is value to predators on the landscape. And I wouldn't want to be in a – I wouldn't want to go to, you know, the Rocky Mountains and there not be bears or mountain lions or wolves or whatever. I wouldn't want a totally sterile ecosystem in world. Um, 
because that's not natural either. So that's that's my own set of and thoughts. But I agree a hundred percent. Mother Nature is a very lean, and, and evolution is very lean. There's no waste. Everything has a purpose, and everything has its part. And like you said, when we came in and ruined it all, that threw everything out of whack. And then it's continue. Mother Nature is continually trying to adjust to find a balance. And then when we go in and we think that we're better than Mother Nature, we are not. It's just like a dam in a river so people can live next to the water. That's not how nature's supposed to do it. There's there's floodplains for a reason. Right. And I just feel that, you know, you can kind of relate a dam to some of these problems. It's the water builds up and builds up and builds up and then it has nowhere to go and the problem just floods and then it's huge. It's a way yeah. bigger problem than what it needs to be. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit. All right, It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Um, there's, 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 there's a lot of examples of this kind of thing just going on. Um, yeah. and it's, it's just, man. The predator thing is just one that gets people really fired up. And I, I guarantee you I'll get an email or a Facebook message from someone who's going to be pissed that we, you know, didn't say kill every single wolf or that, you know, wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think balance in general. I, I want to look for moderation, it's some so kind crazy. of balance. Um, but there's, you know, there's going to be 
hardline, far either side, you know, advocates on both sides of all these debates, whether it's captive deer, whether it's predators, whether it's uh, any other political issue when it comes to anything, I guess. But in this case, deer, um, people are passionate about it, and I get it. I get people have different opinions. Um, I wish, if nothing else, I wish more people could sit down and have conversations about it without mm-hmm. getting nasty. You know, I, I, um, you know, do some stuff with the National Deer Alliance and help them with some of their different media and social media and different things like that. So I see a lot of the comments posted there and like the, the, the debates that start there. Um, and you just see people get nasty. And that happens on forums, that happens on Facebook pages, that happens everywhere. And people just start, they're not, it seems, not everyone, but there's a there's a contingent, maybe it's a very loud minority, but there's a contingent in any of these debates that gets super fired up, isn't willing to listen to anyone other sides, anyone else's point of view, and points fingers and screams and yells and says, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And I wish there was just more, let's talk about it. Let's understand yeah, each other. People are afraid of what they don't understand. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and so when people say, Hey, I have this idea, Oh, Jesus Christ, no way. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This is how it's, you know, when, if we would just sit down and work together to fix some of these problems, everybody has to sacrifice no matter what you are not, that's life in general. You're not going to get everything you want. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Uh, yeah, so I mean that's kind of the story of everything that's, that's going on when it comes to it, that's just like the headline of the whole deal. When it comes to deer politics, policies, problems in general, there's a lot of different opinions. There's a lot of different potential solutions, and lots of people get fired up about it because we love deer, we love deer hunting, and it gets us. You know, we're emotionally invested in it, so it just causes a lot of contention. And you know, taking a step back to our earlier conversation when it comes to the captive deer debate. I understand that I don't understand everything related to that other side of the point of view. And so while I have a strong opinion at this point, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't decline if someone was like, Hey, I have a different point of view. Let's talk about it. I would be right. open to hearing them out and I'm open to a better understanding that. And I'm open to either maybe, maybe my, maybe my viewpoints would shift a little bit, or maybe I would still feel the same way and we can just agree to disagree. But that doesn't mean I hate them. That doesn't mean that I'm completely discrediting them or saying that we should wipe them off the face of the earth. We're just, we're just saying things differently. So moving on, I'd say, um, this is going to be a long podcast because we That's still all right. I think people appreciate are going to appreciate it. And if they got to listen to it in two parts, who cares? I mean, this, these are the big issues and they have to be discussed. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, I hope this is something that people are interested in because, you know, it's, we're not talking about how to kill big deer. We're not talking about something, you know, exciting like that, but I do think it's important to sometimes take a step away from the, the, little part that matters just to me right now. How do I shoot this deer? How do I have some deer hunting success? But it's important to talk about the bigger picture issues like this that aren't fun maybe to talk about sometimes. They're not easy to talk about, but they will impact whether we can have the fun stuff in the future. So so the next thing we talked about this summit was hunter and agency relationships and relations. And this (laughs) fits in perfectly with what we're talking about here. You know, when it comes to the hunters want one thing, and the agencies have another set of goals, and then everyone gets pissed at each other. Um, so the speaker at the convention um, works with an agency that that 
he used to work for, I think it was the Vermont Fish and Game Agency, I believe. Um, and now he works for this larger national organization that represents wildlife agencies in general um, as a larger kind of advocacy group of, of some type or representative organization. And he just talked about the basic challenges. And, you know, the, the biggest thing comes down to communication. Um, we had another talk about this on day three from a very controversial figure um, with some hunters. Um, his name is Dr. Gary Alt. And he was in charge of um, the deer commission of some sorts in Pennsylvania in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and so I'll use his example as an example of this greater issue of hunter agency relationships. And, and we can see where that goes. But so he was in charge of, of managing the deer situation in Pennsylvania at that time period. And what he shared with us is, you know, at that time period, he was brought in because there was massive habitat issues because of very, very high, unnaturally high populations of deer, um, like 80 deer per square mile, 100 deer per square mile or something, something like that. Very high populations. And you would see that where there was, he showed a number of examples where they put parts of a forest in, seclu in a, an enclosure. Um, so there's 100 acres in an enclosure that deer can't get into. And then there's 100 acres that's open to the deer. Um, and then they clear cut them both. And then they wanted to see how the forest would regenerate. What What's the change in habitat? And within like three years, you see the enclosed portion had tremendous growth. Thick as all get out, completely full. I mean, just nasty, huge, tall brush, trees, all sorts of stuff. When you looked at the side that had the deer, there was nothing. There was some grass. There was like no new tree growth. There was no new uh, bush growth. I mean, it was just devastated habitat. And this is a, you know, an illustration of the impact that the too high of deer population was having on the overall population and or on the overall habitat. And the issue is that if you've got that many deer and you damage the habitat that much because of an out of balance herd, you get exactly what you talked about, you know, five minutes ago, Dan, it's like this river that's getting dammed and the river's dammed and that water level rises and rises and rises. You get this deer population that's rising and rising and rising because there's no major predators. There's not enough hunting of does and the habitat though, isn't changing. So that deer population continues to rise and rise, rise until it falls, it breaks the dam. And that's when you get deer that are dying from starvation or deer that are not as healthy or reduce fawn recruitment rates because these deer don't have enough food to support healthy fawns. Um, and you also get, they also had tremendous at the, the, uh, the age structure of their herd there was ridiculous. Um, something like 80% of all their deer were, that were killed were a year and a half old bucks. Like just There was no mature bucks. It was just a, tons of does, no mature deer, no mature bucks, and just a bunch of young bucks doing all the breeding. Um, so it was just a very, and as, as I understood it from what he was sharing with us and from what I've heard from others, it was an unhealthy deer situation. But many hunters in Pennsylvania, um, they were seeing a lot of deer, and they liked that. And so... I want to be careful here too, because I know there's me guys in Pennsylvania that, that are still pissed about this. Cause I see comments all the time. They hate this guy, Dr. Gary Alt, because they believe that he drove their deer population into the ground. Um, like I'm still seeing people say that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm sure there, there's probably someone in Pennsylvania listening right now that thinks that what I'm telling, which isn't my story. I'm just telling this guy's story back to you guys, but they're gonna be pissed that we're talking about him and not saying he's horrible. Um, I'm just sharing the viewpoint of what was discussed at the convention was, was talking about the fact that his goal, what he described to us was that this looked like a habitat and deer population issue that was out of balance and it had to be brought back into balance to reach a natural and healthy 
place in the middle where hopefully the the population could be healthy again, the habitat could get back to a relatively normal state, and that would result in healthier deer. And hopefully they could find a way to do this in a way that, you know, hunters could still enjoy quality hunting experiences too, especially into the future, which was a risk if things continue to go down the drain. So long story short, they decided after a whole bunch of discussions and debate and research that the, the best way to do this, or the only option they had to do this was to increase the allotment of doe tags. So get more people to kill more does, bring the doe population down and reduce the harvest of young bucks. So they put antler point restrictions into effect as that was the only way they could, um, keep all the young bucks from getting shot. Um, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't shut down the season. They couldn't do different things like that. So it was put some type of restriction. So Dr. Gary Alt had to go around the state talking about this, these changes, these proposed changes, and try to help people understand why they're doing it. And over the course of however long this period was where they kind of did this tour of the state, it, was got, it got super, super nasty. He got tons of death threats, and he was abused and yelled and screamed at and spit at, and um, it just dis- destroyed a lot of ways. He said a lot of things in his life just kind of fell apart. He said it ruined his career in general, and he knew that going into it because he knew this would be unpopular. Um, I, you know, I, I wasn't involved in it. I can't say who was, who was right, who was wrong, or what to believe and what not to believe. I'm just telling you what I heard. Um, mm-hmm. But I just think this situation is a perfect illustration of the hunter-agency relationship, where hunters, in many cases, we, right, you and me, um, we want to have a quality deer hunting experience. We want to see deer. We want to have, you know, all those things. And then a lot of these wildlife agencies, um, you know, they too want there to be deer in the habitat because hunters are their greatest stakeholders and they pay the bills and their job is to manage the wildlife in the interest of the public trust. Um, but they also have to balance everything. So they can't manage just for one person or just one species at all times. They have to manage across a number of different needs. So they have to look at ecosystem ecosystem stuff. Again, they have to look at balancing things to some degree. So that causes unpopular decisions sometimes with people like you and me. Um, so that's what this larger discussion was about was it was how can we as hunters try to better understand what they're trying to do and how can the wildlife agencies try to better understand where us hunters are coming from and how can we, how can we communicate better and how can we work together better? Um, so that was a big thing that was talked about. Um, I don't know if there was any like major solutions that were discussed or that came out of it, but that's, that's an issue that's just, you know, it's contentious. It's happening everywhere right now. I don't know if you've seen Dan, but like in Ohio, there's a lot of hunters in Ohio that are really upset about the deer population and where things are going and how the DNR there is managing it. There's a lot of people upset in Minnesota about how people are managing their deer population. They think that there's way too many deer being killed up in the northern parts of the state, I believe. Um, so they're having, they're actually having an outside group audit their DNR, audit mm-hmm. how they're managing the deer herd. Um, and that happened back in Wisconsin, I think in 2010, they brought in, interestingly, they brought in Dr. James Kroll, who is another deer researcher, biologist, et cetera. And then they brought Gary Alt, this guy I just talked about, they brought him in as part of this audit team to audit how the DNR in Wisconsin was doing, managing it. So it's just something, it's going to pop up, it happens, um, and it gets people fired up. I'm not going to say anything right now, because I'm going to bring some of this stuff up on the next topic that we're going to be talking about and, and I kind of feel it all kind of ties together. Yeah. I think a lot of these things tie together. So is the next topic that you're thinking we're talking about hunter recruitment? Correct. All right. Perfect. So then that next topic, which is hunter recruitment, 
was voted on the final or the final part of day two was voted as the number one issue of concern for the National Deer Alliance. So, you know, in general, if we want to be able to, if we want deer hunting to continue to be managed as a priority, if we want, you know, what we do to be accepted, if we want there to be sustainable populations, if we want there to be places for us to hunt, if we want all of these things that are important to us right now, it's going to be hard to have those if there are significantly fewer deer hunters in the future by virtue of the fact that we are the ones who vote and take action to protect these things. If there's no one who cares about that stuff anymore, no one's going to vote in favor of that anymore or take action or donate money to those things anymore. And then if there's no one who cares about this stuff, no one's going to take care of this stuff. So because of that, bringing new hunters into the fold in some way is an issue of top concern for the people at the summit. And I think for a lot of people, and if anyone listened to last week's podcast with Steve Rinella, we talked about this topic um, and how some people, this we talked about that you and me talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, and so, you know, my point of view on it was what I just said right there, right? It's important to continue bringing people into the fold because we need more advocates for our way of life. And if people don't experience it, they won't love it. They won't take care of it and support it. On the other side of the coin, which I th- at one point I know you shared with me, uh, and I, I guess I'll ask you, I won't speak for you, um, but last week Steve and Ranella's, or Steve Ranella talked about his brother's point of view was that, hey, I want fewer hunters because it's already hard to get good ground. It's already hard to find places to hunt. It's already f- hard to get a good deer. Um, why would I want more people out here screwing it up for me? So I know there's a lot of people who have that point of view too. Um, so that was another topic of debate too. So... What are your thoughts on that, Dan? Where where are you at with this? All right. So in order for a group of people to be heard and be and, and be strong is for them to unite. And what I what I keep going back to is as hunters, let's say we take all the hunters right now. How many of how many hunters do you know who other aside from me and you? You know, is your uncle, is, is, does he care about these things? Do my uncles and, and my friends who are the, the weekend warriors who they go out, they buy their tags and they hunt deer and then that's it. They're not a part of anything else. I feel before we go out and say, hello, United States, we would love for you to come hunt. I think we need to educate the hunters that are out there, provide them with the statistics and the information so we can all be one giant voice because there's millions of hunters out there that don't, don't really, I'm not going to say that they don't care. They don't care until it's too late. And I feel that we need to unite before we, and, and, and have a, one voice, which is hard to do, but I, I feel like the National Deer Alliance is the first step in that direction, that we need to understand that we're not all going to agree, but we have to do what's right and, and, and get, get the communication lines open before we say, hey, everybody, come on, because I'll, I'll be honest with you. If you tell me, hey, Dan, why don't you go out and take one person hunting this year, get them into hunting. That person right there is going to get an education as opposed to some dipshit out there who is, you know, a weekend warrior, may not be ethically following all the, you know, ethically hunting correctly, maybe not following all the rules and guidelines. Then then what you have is a new hunter who is not following all the rules 
and guidelines who is not hunting ethically because he's educated by someone else out there who thinks it's okay. So do I think that in order for us to move forward, we need more hunters? Yes. But we need to also have an education and, and oh God, what's the word I'm looking for, for the current hunters, a sense of urgency that says you need to be involved now more than ever before. I couldn't agree with you more. I th- that's so true. I think a perfect example of this is, you know, when the National Deer Alliance was created, there was a, a, a study or they looked at some kind of statistics that looked at the percentage of, if you look at the different deer or the different hunting uh, communities, like if you look at the waterfowl community, the duck hunting community, you look at the turkey hunting community, you look at the elk hunting community, and you look at the deer hunting community, and you say, okay, there's there's this many duck hunters. Here's the percentage of duck hunters who are members of Ducks Unlimited. If you look at the number of turkey hunters, here's the percentage of that number that's involved in the National uh, National Wild Turkey Federation. If I can't remember what the actual numbers were, but it's something like 10, 15, 20, 30% of all of these different groups. A significant portion of all of those hunter groups or hunter populations are part of the conservation organization for their group. But for deer, there's eleven. There's over 11 million deer hunters involved. in. There's 11, over 11 million deer hunters, and less than 1% of our population is involved in any kind of deer organization by far the least of any other species out there. Yep. And it's it's indicative of exactly what you said, that there's people are too apathetic. They, they just don't care. If it doesn't affect me right now on my property, my deer, my situation, people just, like you said, they don't give a shit. As right. much as they hate to say that, more people need to care and, and, and not just look at what's happening with me, but look at the bigger picture. And I know I'm, I'm you know, I'm talking from my, my high my high horse right now or whatever. Um, and I can be a hundred percent better. I could do better for sure. I'm not always great at this either. It's easy to get, you know, I just, I just, uh, wrote a little thing about this a week or two ago and I talked about conservation tunnel vision, this idea that, you know, we're, we get so focused on our piece of property, our deer herd, our bucks, our hunting. It's easy to forget about the larger picture. And that's, that's not just a deer hunting thing or just a hunting thing. That's just a people in general. You know, if a new tax doesn't impact me, I might not care about it or get upset about it. Or if a new regulation from, you know, the government doesn't impact me, maybe I won't care, even though it impacts 30 million other people. Um, I understand that's human nature, but I just hope and wish that more of us within the deer hunting community could start paying attention to some of these things because they do impact us all. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like, it doesn't necessarily have to be donating money to a specific, because you know, a lot of people think that if you're going to be a part of something that you have to spend money, well, you don't, you, you know, sometimes, sometimes it may, we may ask for a vote to take time out of your day to go vote for what's important. You know, whether that is, you know, an elected official or a law or, or a bill or something like that, but, or, or write, write your congressman or your house of representatives, um, person, but 1%, all right, focus on the people who are already hunters and get that voice louder. And then, because I, you know, I read in some articles, you know, it's like, Hey, we need numbers so we can vote. We have numbers, educate the numbers that we do have to get them you know, get them active. 
then we can start the recruitment. I mean, I can't argue with your logic on that. I mean, I a hundred percent agree that we need to, to activate our base is, you know, if you're talking like what they'd say in politics, like we have our base, our hunter, our current hunters, we need to get those people more involved. You and me, Dan, we need to get more involved. Hopefully our listeners can get more involved. Um, and I hope if anything comes out of this entire, you know, conversation we're having here, it's just the fact that, hey, there's some stuff happening. There's things happening that really should should require your attention. You should be paying attention to these things. Think about these things. Think about how they might impact you in the future, or maybe they are right now. Um, and to your point, you don't need to donate money. Maybe you join the group. Or maybe you just participate in sharing your opinion more. Or, you know, there's all these different meetings that go on that wildlife agencies put on to get comments from the general public on new regulations or things like that. And in many cases, they get very, very small turnouts. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they get tons of people getting pissed off about this new regulation. But then only like 1% of the population actually showed up to talk about it when they have these meetings to discuss the new regulations and ideas and things like that. So, I mean find ways to get involved, whether it be show up for something like that or donate money or volunteer time, uh, talk to a legislature legislator. Um, there's many different ways to get involved. And I think probably the first and foremost step though, is just becoming educated on it, like pay attention to it yep. just so you understand what's happening. And from a more cynical, I get, maybe that's the word I'm looking for. If you're not doing anything, don't bitch about it. Shut up. <laughs> no, honest, because I don't care. I don't care about you if all you're doing is bitching. If you're if you are coming to the table with a problem, also bring a solution. That's what I do for my job every day. You know, there's no value in any part of life if you're just bitching. Because at that you're part of the problem at that point or or you're just in the way of finding a goal or you know having a problem reach a goal yeah. or finding a solution. So I have no time, even people that I may agree with on certain topics, whether it's hunting related or political or whatever, what did you do? If you're not doing something, eh, I have no time for you. Yeah. I, I can't argue with that. I agree. I mean, come to the table with your opinions if you want them and your complaints if you have them, but let's talk solutions. Let's talk about it. Let's but try to understand each other. Let's let's yeah. engage. Um, I agree. Just going out there and throwing a fit doesn't do any good either. And, I, and I'll be honest with you. Until I joined the National Deer Alliance and, you know, you helped me with this podcast be m- more involved and in, in through Wired to Hunt, you know, I've, I've taken a little shift. You know, I, I had been a hypocrite in the past saying, oh, the DNR don't know shit. And, you know, they they think they know what they're doing, but they don't. When in reality, a majority of these uh, these agencies, you know, they're not just trying to f you every day. Right. They are. They have hunter interests in mind because how do they make their money from hunters? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's that. There's there's always going to be the people that are cynical or anti-government, anti-establishment who just assume, right? Like you said, that they're just trying to screw you over. Um, I typically, uh, not that I think that all that all governing organizations are, are not ever at fault. I think there's certainly are plenty of ways that yes. agencies are different. There's plenty of ways that can be improved and we need to make sure we keep them accountable. All those things. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I tend to agree with what you said, Dan, that I don't personally think that these agencies are trying to screw us over. I think they're trying to 
do the best job they can to balance everyone's interests. But of course, it's hard to balance, you know, everyone, all the different interests. And I think uh, I'll say one thing. While I don't think any of these agencies are doing the best possible job in the world, I would say that in general, they're doing a pretty darn good job because let's take a look at where we were from a wildlife standpoint 70 years ago. You know, at the in the early 20th century, we didn't have anything. We didn't have any of these deer. We didn't have any of these elk. We were, um, yep. we were near extirpation of these species. And over the past 40, 50, 60 years, we've seen an unbelievable, you know, reestablishment of wildlife populations in, in this country. They're at tremendous levels, even though right now there's lots of concern about the fact that they're declining in some places and we're having some issues. Um, the only reason we can complain about the fact that the harvest rate's down, you know, 10, 15% is because we've grown it to just such a great, incredible point where these populations are, are massive at a point that no one's you know enjoyed since the 18, 1800s. So in any, in any, sorry to cut you off, but in any process, micromanagement is the hardest part. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Uh, so I think, you know, do we need to keep our agencies accountable? Yes. Do we need to make sure that they hear the hunter's voice? 100% absolutely. Do we need to, um, you know, offer strong feedback sometimes, offer solutions sometimes, um, ask for them to make adjustments sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, it's important, I think, for you and me, Dan, and all of our listeners to sometimes also try to look at the other side of the coin too and say, okay, what are they trying to do here? What does this mean from a big picture? How, to your point, how can we part? Of, how can we be part of the solution and not just uh, a loud voice that's part of the problem. Yep. So there's that. Um, so those are the those are the four issues that were kind of had larger discussions earlier in the summit. And then after that, we then had a list of 15 high level concerns that were then including those plus more that were voted on by the overall group to determine what the top five issues should be for the NDA to to really focus on moving forward in the short term. So we've already kind of touched on these, but I'll just mention them again. And then if, if you want to touch on any of these anymore, Dan, we can. Um, the number one voted issue was hunter recruitment. The number two issue was the impact of politics on deer management. Number three was habitat loss and landscape changes. Number four was the public perception of hunting by the non-hunting public and what that might mean for, you know, the future of deer hunting. And then number five was the captive deer industry. So those are the five issues. And then the final part of day two was going through each one of those issues and then spending about an hour on each issue brainstorming action items. So what are actual things we can do to, to make progress on that issue? So do you, do you think that we are making some of these things way more difficult than what they need to be? Uh because we've had a really good discussion and it's kind of been you know we haven't we haven't really shared any any uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for any advice or point of view from outside the hunt, hunting industry you know outside like non-hunters or or um captive deer breeders but it just seems to me that some of these things are very simple here is a way to get the ball rolling in the right direction. But instead, I, I just feel like because we're not 100% united, there there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians, if that makes sense. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. 
Yes. I mean, there's a lot of simple things that can happen that could be done, but it, like you said, it requires unification and just like make a step forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the challenge is that it's hard to get to that point uh, because even within the deer hunting community, there's just a lot of different opinions on everything. Um, and so, I mean, you know, take for example, you know, we, we, you know, the vote on these five issues, but then within each one of these five issues, there's a million different points of view about how, what that next step should be. Um, and so I think doing an event like this, the summit where we're encouraging people to get involved and asking people to get involved, um, that's a step in the right direction. Um, but there's, there's still a lot, you know, a lot more to get done. And then the the question then is, and what the challenge with this next part was, is that some of these things seem like simple, but at the same time, actually, you know, determining a step that an organization or group of peoples can take that will make a meaningful difference. Um, like an actual, like very clear cut do X equals Y that, that is sometimes easier said than done. Um, so for example, the number one issue was hunter recruitment. How do we address the issue of the fact that fewer hunters are getting into hunting and there's a large number of hunters leaving hunting faster than we're growing it? How do we address that? And there's a bunch of different ideas, uh, but none of them were like a simple, easy fix. It, there's no way to flip a switch and all of a sudden like everyone understands how great deer hunting is and, hey, I want to get involved. Um, to like something you mentioned a little bit earlier, Dan, um, the fact like you know if we're getting new people into hunting, and if you took someone hunting, you would take them out. You would educate them about ethics. You would educate them about the process. You would educate them about how to do it the right way, how to handle that animal afterwards properly, you know, clean and gut and process that deer, how to appreciate it afterwards. You would talk through all these different things. Um, but finding mentors to do that to help new hunters is pretty darn hard because everyone's focused on them. Everyone's focused on my day, my property. Uh yeah, I want new hunters to come out, but I don't want them to come to my spot. Um, yep. You know, there's a lot of that. And then number two, e- even though we could say, well, we just need more mentors. Well, there's a challenge that I just mentioned there. And then moving on, let's say, let's say even in a great world, we do get a bunch of new mentors. People like you or one of our listeners step up and say, yeah, I'll take us, I'll take someone out on a new hunt, on a first hunt. You take them out there, they learn all this stuff, they have a great day, but if you're not there to take them out the next day or the next weekend or the next weekend, those people, they drop off because it's hard for someone who has no experience with deer hunting to go out once and then all of a sudden have all the tools necessary to become a lifelong hunter. They don't have a place to go. They don't know how to use a gun or they might not feel comfortable going out in the woods by themselves in the middle of the night. They might not feel comfortable with one hunt and all of a sudden being able to gut an animal by themselves. So a lot of these things require not only a first time hunt experience, but they require a long term mentorship. Someone um, to hold their hand a little bit. Exactly. And that's an even greater ask for someone. So, I mean, just in that one example, like even if we think the easy solution is take someone out hunting, well, even that might not work in the long term. So it's like all these different issues have got this cascade of, but then what? But mm-hmm. then what? And then what happens after that? And so, yes, we need to take action. We need to take the first step to even get to the next one. But it's just, man, few things are ever super easy right right so so i don't know so those are the those are the five issues we've talked a lot about hunter recruitment i think um we could we could talk about two things here dan um here closing things out because we're already getting pretty long on on the show we could either 
talk through these five issues and offer any final thoughts on yours or my opinions on these. Um, or I could walk through the top three voted action items for each one of these issues as voted on by the summit and you know see if that's something that would be helpful for people to hear about or that you and I might want to talk about. Um, or we can just close the thing up. What do you think, Dan? Well, I think, I think one thing we need to do is tell something to our, our, our viewers on what they can do to become involved. Because the, the things that are popping into my head right now is what you, know, what you, what you said, like some of the, the hunting celebrities, you know, no one was at, there to represent that side of the industry. Maybe not some of the big name owners of some of these companies. My challenge to the listeners would be to go to your, go to your favorite hunting celebrities uh, social media page and ask them if they are a member of the National Deer Alliance. And maybe through friendly pressure, we can get more of those people involved because they rely on the resource more than, you know, to make money too, you know, get, and then that's how it kind of snowballs. We have to do our part to not only get involved, but then pass the buck and say, hey, so-and-so, are you involved? It's very simple. All you have to do is go to their website and sign up. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that that is absolutely the first step is is getting involved in that capacity. And um, I do think that, you know, regardless of, you know, whatever, the thing with the National Deer Alliance is right now the National Deer Alliance is an organization to just try to get people involved and start talking about these things. So whether or not you agree on things that we've talked about with me or with Dan, we might have different opinions. Even if you completely disagree with everything I've personally said right now, you should still join the National Deer Alliance just because that is a um, that organization is going to be a medium for people to discuss these issues and have it's your voice. voice. It's your voice. Exactly. Yep. So, so make sure you're part of that so that you can make sure that your opinions on that are part of that larger voice. Um, and so right now, you know, the national deer Alliance is, is still a fledgling organization, you know, it just launched last summer and, you know, I've been able to see some of the stuff going on behind the scenes and I had no idea there's a crap ton of like foundational logistics that need to be taken care of on the back end for an organization like that just to get off the ground. Um, so like there's not been a lot of stuff that's happening, like, uh, from a substantial, like the national deer Alliance is standing up for X issue and has submitted these policy regulation or recommendations and has sent these lobbyists to the Congress. That's not happening yet because it takes a ton of behind the scenes work just to get an organization like this started. So the organization, organization is getting started. It's getting its feet, but it needs members. It needs every single one of you who's listening right now to join the group and to start participating in that conversation. You know, every week an email goes out to the members of the NDA that does two things. Number one, it shares all the different news-related items regarding deer happening that week. So every different policy change in different states, every different issue of debate, every different uh, controversy or update or regulation change, those things are covered every single week. So if nothing else, everyone should just be educated on that. Like sign up for no other reason just to get that update because we need to know about the things that are happening in our state or within the states we hunt or all across the country that might impact deer hunting. So that's the number one thing is from a very small little piece of what they're doing, they're just helping educate. And then number two, they're asking questions. There's a survey every week and there's different issues are pulled and surveyed to get the membership's opinion on that issue to start getting the voice better understood. And I know 
given my participation with the National Deer Alliance, that when those polls are taken, then the folks working for the NDA go back on their side and they say, okay, let's look at these numbers. Let's look at what this means for the population of the Deer, of the deer Alliance's members. And that is going to be factored into how decisions are made in the future, whether that be through you know, people sharing their opinions in the polls or, in this case, going to the summit and being and participating in that event where actively you can vote and those things are actually determining the direction of this organization, which eventually I'm, it will be the largest deer conservation organization in the world, if not the largest conservation organization, because there's a lot of people behind this group right now. I mean, everyone, there just needs to be more people just you and me, Dan, more regular mm-hmm. hunters. We need to make sure more of us are getting to be a part of it. But the people from a conservation organization standpoint and all the major industry foundations and groups and companies, a lot of these people realize this is an important group and conversation that needs to be had. We just need to get more people to, to participate. And I hope that this long, drawn-out conversation about policies, politics, and problems, if nothing else, will just remind all of us that – we can't just focus on what's happening on my back 40, but we also need to look at the bigger picture. And um, the one smallest tiny step of moving in that direction is to join the NDA. Do you know how, how many current uh, members there are? I don't know the exact number. Uh, whatever it is, it's not enough. It's not enough. So I do know that. Yep. Um, and it, it, there's 11 million, somewhere over 11 million deer hunters. And for sure, I mean, I know that the, the quality of deer management association has over 60,000 members. I know they announced that at the, at the convention that they had this past weekend. Um, I don't know what the Whitetails Unlimited number is, but 60,000 is 60,000 members of QDM, which has been around since the eighties. So, and that's, that's not even, you know, that's not even 10% of the overall deer population. So I think, you know, there's just, even if a million deer hunters, if less than a tenth of all deer hunters would give a crap, that'd be a million members of the NDA. And that's a voice that, that will be heard. If you have a million strong members, that's something that is hard to ignore. Um, I see no reason why there shouldn't be that many people who care enough to at least participate in the conversation. Right. So, so there's that, I guess. Big issues, big topics. Big big issues and you know it all comes down to if if you want your way of life to continue to go the way it's going you have to be you have to do something about it because if you're not one day you're going to wake up and you're not going to be able to go hunting anymore and then I would be a felon because I would go hunting anyway (laughs) and uh (laughs) we don't we don't want we don't want that no I mean, it's it's true though. It's it's scary, and I hate to keep harping on this, but ninety six percent, I believe, is the number. Ninety six percent of Americans don't hunt. They have no experience with hunting, and that means that there's only four percent of us who really care about this. And if we don't protect that, and if we don't um, work together, if we don't educate those who don't hunt, it, it, even if they don't become hunters, if nothing else, we need to make sure they're educated properly. So that they'll at least understand our way of thinking. If we're not doing those things, I mean, we don't even have a semblance of majority. We are the tiniest of minorities. So when it comes in a democracy like we live in, where majority rules, we're in a very tenuous position. If all of a sudden our way of thinking, you know, is not 
is not uh, you know properly believed or respected in the greater population. So it's just stuff you got to think about. And I, I know it's 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 a bummer of a conversation. It's not as much fun as patterning mature bucks. And I'm not we're not helping anyone today. You know, have a great deer hunting season probably. Um, but sometimes you got to take a step back and and talk about these things. It's it's part of it. Yes, it is. So I think. I think that probably is, is, is enough for us to cover today. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Every one of these issues has got a million different opinions and perspectives on it. And, you know, we both shared a couple of our opinions. By no means, you know, am I, and I don't think you are, either one of us aren't claiming to know it all. We're not claiming to have the right answer. We just have our perspectives and our experiences that we can pull from. Um, and I totally understand that some of you listening probably think some different things. And, and that's okay, too. I get that. Um, and I respect that. And I think if we can all agree to respect each other's different opinions, but at least have the conversation. We'll be moving in a positive direction. So I think that is my closing thought on deer hunting policies, politics, and problems. Do you have anything else you want to close with Dan? Nope. All right. Well then that is going to do it for us today on the wired hunt podcast. Um, there are some different articles that have been written already about the summit that summarize some of the different things I talked about and, and provide some details. I, I should have had my notes prepared and had some of these stats and things, but I, I just forgot. It's been a busy day. So if you want to see some more of those details, I'll put some links in the show notes today. Uh, and that'll be at wiredtohunt.com slash episode 55. So go to wiredtohunt.com slash episode 55 for the show notes and links to some more information about the summit and these issues. As always, we also would like to thank our partners who do help keep the Wired to Hunt podcast on the air. Big thank you to our partners Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, and most importantly, thank you to all of you listening in today. We appreciate it. We appreciate you listening to me and Dan Rant for maybe agreeing to disagree with us for maybe agreeing with us on some things for maybe reaching out and sharing your opinions and perspectives and being part of this larger conversation. Thanks for doing that. That's important. And we appreciate that. And as we talked about, I really do hope that you all will take the time to get more engaged with what's going on in the larger deer hunting community, you know, make your voice heard, get involved. And if you're not already, you know, as Dan and I have both said, we'd encourage you to join the national deer Alliance just to, just to get better involved in that conversation. And finally, and with all that said, get out there, have an awesome week, spend some time outside, and as always, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.